I took a contact out <laughs> to see if I could read better, but now I can't really see the clock very well, so we'll see how this works out. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together in community and um, just wrestling with your word and, and what Paul has written for us. Lord, I just pray that our conversations would be pointing to you, that the teaching tonight would give us a clear picture of the blessings that you have for us, and that our discussions um, would also be clarifying and helpful. And Lord, we just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, Ephesians 15 through 23 is where we are tonight. One of the things that, um, that I thought about in preparation for this um, is that some, one of the things that I appreciate about Ephesians and what Eric had laid out before tonight, oftentimes when we go to Scripture, we can have a hard time trying to figure out the context in which a letter was written or the context of the audience. Um, and we might have to do a little bit of digging and some research to understand why people are writing the way they are and what, they're, what exactly they're writing and what they're writing hoping to gain. Um, but in this situation, I think that um, it's pretty easy to understand the culture of Ephesus because in some ways it's not that far removed from how we are living today. Um, and his prayer uh, to, the, to the Ephesians is really asking um, that, he, that God would give them a courage, encouraging their love and their faith. And so his prayer is really focused on something that he wants God to, be, to bless them with, and he wants them to have an understanding. The hope and the, glo the, hope and the glory of God and all of the things that God has blessed them with. Um, and he did this simply because he wanted them to know who God is. And he wanted them to understand that the unity that they have in Jesus Christ and in each other. And so what Paul is doing this, in this um, section is he's writing a prayer. Um, or he's not writing. He's reading a prayer. He's telling them about this prayer that he says on their behalf. Um, and it's really a prayer that I think that we can imagine a pastor saying um, here at Timberwood or a pastor saying in any, any congregation or community. It's a prayer that you might hear um, a parent say for their child or it could be a prayer that you would hear um, a small group leader saying for their small group um, friends or a youth group leader saying for the youth, uh, youth in their group. Um, and so it's a prayer that I feel like is universal and something that we would all want prayed for us and on our behalf, and um, it points to us as well. So with that being said, I'm also going to point out, um, we'll go through this pretty um, succinctly, kind of like Eric did last week, and I wanted to say we'll go through it sentence by sentence, but it's just one huge sentence. I actually think that this sentence might be... <laughs> longer than the one from last week. And by the way, whoever laughed at Eric's one sentence to describe the book of Ephesians, I think you should retract that and probably apologize to him because <laughs> I don't think that his sentence was as long as these sentences in here. 
So let's get started. If you are in a blue um, Bible, you are on page 976. This first read will go through the entire um, passage, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is in the hope, what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, of him who fills all in all. So verses 15 and 16 are actually, they're giving us the two reasons that Paul is giving thanksgiving and he's also praying for the Ephesians. The first is the very first um, three words, for this reason. For this reason points to the doxology that Eric talked about last week. Um, it's pointing and it's praising God for all of the blessings that he has offered. And he's praising, um, he's praising him for those and he's thanking God for those blessings. And in addition to that, because he has heard of the church's faith, in Jesus and the love that they have towards one another, he's thankful for that. And so he says, I give thanks to you and pray for you. He is pleased to hear about the faith that they have in Jesus and the love that they have for one another. Because Paul, in the rest of this um, book, will talk about what it looks like for the church to care for one another and love one another. And so the rest of the passage tells us what he prays for. And it starts in verse 17, where he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. He says, may give you. So he's asking God to give the Ephesians something. This is often referred to as a prayer of intercession or just intercession. This is a prayer that is on behalf of somebody. You're doing it for somebody or for a group of people. And this is, um, a, this is a very common way that we pray today. We pray on behalf of people. When we get our prayer requests on Sunday morning and in staff, uh, in our staff meetings, we sit and we we um, distribute them so everybody has a stack of prayer cards and we go through them one by one and we take turns and we pray through every single card and that is a prayer of intercession. We are praying on behalf of the people who have submitted those. So Paul is praying on behalf of those um, who are the followers of Christ, the church. The church, and when I say church, I mean the big C church. 
And so to differentiate between when we say capital C or big C church or little c, um, when you say capital C, we're talking about the church, the people that make up the church of Christ, the, all of the people in it. So that's everywhere all over the world. That is like the global church. When we talk about a lowercase c or, you know, church, oftentimes we're talking about a location. And so when I first um, was here, and I, f- and I don't remember who, well, it was John, I said, I'm going, I'm going to the church. And he goes, no, you're not. You're going to Timberwood. And I said, well, I'm running up to the church. And he says, well, the church is the people. Timberwood Church is the building. And so you're actually running up to Timberwood Church, not the church. So just to differentiate. So he's praying for the church. And that also tells us that perhaps um, this letter wasn't necessarily written just to the church in Ephesus. It could have been applied for any of the churches in the first century. And because it is the church big C, it applies to us now. So when we read this, when we read this prayer, we can also hear Paul praying for us as well. Instead of saying he's praying that the Ephesians experience this, we can also say that he is praying that we have this knowledge or we have this experience. So he's also talking to us. So this prayer that is very common, like I said before, we oftentimes do this, and it seems um, it's pretty comfortable to pray for other people. I'll oftentimes, I'll text people, and maybe some of you have been the recipient of my text. Somebody's name will come on my, into my mind or on my heart, and I'll think, I'm not sure why I'm thinking about this person. So I'll just pick up my phone, and I'll text, and I'll say, you've been on my mind this morning. How can I pray for you today? And so oftentimes it is um, received very well, like, oh, wow, I can't believe your timing. This is going on right now, and I can't believe that you sent me this text when you did. Thank you. This is the, the prayer that I need. So that's another example of um, intercession type of prayer. So let's read. Um, well, let me say this. Paul didn't ask how he could pray for them either. So I asked, how can I pray for you? Paul in this did not ask them, how can I pray for you? He's watching them. He sees what is going on. He's heard that they have been faithful um, and that they're loving each other well. And so he knows how he wants to pray for them. He knows that there's something that he wants for them and that he can't give it to to them himself. There's not a single sermon that somebody could sit in and get it, and there's not a lifetime of Sunday mornings that somebody will get what he is about to pray for. So let's now read Paul's intercession um, prayer, verses 17 through 20. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards 
towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul says that the Spirit will help them to find this deep understanding of who God is. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So these eyes are a description for a deep understanding. And when there's a biblical use of the word heart, it's often expressing like this inward um, this inward self. It's our mind. It's our emotion. It's how we feel. And so he's looking for this enlightenment. And he's asked the Holy Spirit to help with that. Paul doesn't want them, he doesn't want us to just know about God. He doesn't want us to just read a book and say, oh, that's who God is. That's what he did back then. Oh, that's what the book says that he has given us in Jesus. And oh, this is what our inheritance is. He wants more for us. He wants us to have a complete understanding of who God is. And he wants us to understand the significance of the blessings that he, God, has given us. And so he wants us to know God in light of his call for us, the inheritance that he talks of, and then his power as well. So those three things, Paul feels like those are the things that we need to know in order to fully know who God is. He prays that the spirit of wisdom and revelation will be part of our enlightenment. This is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that Eric talked about last week that is in us. We are sealed with it. It has sealed our salvation. Okay? So this, the Holy Spirit is in us. And this is the method, the tool, um, the means in which Paul prays that we are enlightened, that the Holy Spirit would enlighten us and help us to see what we may not be able to see on our own. This doesn't mean to just pray and do nothing else and then just sit and wait for the Holy Spirit to just like bestow upon us some fabulous wisdom about God, like flip my top open and, and pour in all the wisdom and knowledge. That's not what he's praying for. He's not praying that the Holy Spirit does this for us and we don't have to do anything um, as part of that. It also doesn't mean that we need to use all of our mind and our thinking to get to that point. That if we just do enough of reading of this and studying of this and understanding, we'll have all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge that, we'll, that we need. The Holy Spirit is something that is in us that he wants to use, that he wants us to experience the Holy Spirit giving us things, giving us an insight into who God is. Knowing God actually means that we must think. We do have to think. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. We have to experience. And we have to fully understand the significance of what God has given us in the blessings that he has talked about. And so it's not one thing. It's not, if I do this, I'll understand. If I have the Holy Spirit in me, then I will understand. If I have this experience, say, um, a, prayer a prayer retreat or um, some mountaintop experience, 
those in and of themselves are not necessarily going to give us that full understanding, but a combination of those things are what Paul is hoping for. So we need to look exactly at what Paul wants us to know about God. The hope of God's calling. This calling for fellowship is with Jesus Christ. There's hope in that. It's not just fellowship with some like really um, magnetic pastor down the road. This is somebody, this is a different kind of person. This is a savior. The hope is understanding the significance of God's call. The hope is in the freedom that we have in Christ. It's also the peace that we have in Christ and the new life that we have in Christ. The hope of God's future for us. It is our eternity. So those are the things that Paul is hoping that will enlighten us and help us to better understand who God is and what exactly he has done for us. Freedom in Christ, peace in Christ, a new life in Christ, and also that hope for us in the future, our eternity with Christ. He also wants us to fully understand the glory of God's inheritance. And so what is that inheritance? It is the inheritance of adoption into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters of, in Christ. We also have this future of eternity with Christ and with each other. Some of the, um, some theologians would look at this um, particular sentence in, um, in um, verse 18 that says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you that are the riches of his glorious inheritance, his glorious inheritance. And so a lot of people will say, this isn't actually talking about our inheritance. This is actually talking about God's inheritance of us. And so some scholars will say it's his inheritance. Some will say that it's our inheritance. And I think this is an example of, I don't know that we necessarily need to choose which one it is because I'm not sure in the end it really matters. And so I don't feel it necessary for myself to choose which way it is. And so I'm comfortable with it being either way. But that might be something um, that if you want to have a discussion about it or want to experience or see some of the resources or have the discussion in your discussion groups, um, you certainly can do that there as well. And so these, this inheritance, there's a lot that we know about this inheritance. And it's important for us to realize that this is a primary focus. This is one of the huge um, blessings that we have from God. And Paul wants us to understand the significance of this. He also wants us to believe in the power of God. If we don't understand the significance of God's power, then I'm not sure that we can necessarily believe that he has done for us and blessed us the way that he has. So, for example, um, the focus is on God's life-giving power, not some cosmic display of, a po of power like in 
um, Star Wars and you see these cosmic battles, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the battles of deities um, that we have heard about from the Greco-Roman world either. We're just talking about the power that he has to accomplish the things that he did. For example, he had the power to accomplish the resurrection of Jesus. He raised Jesus from the dead. There is no human um, or medical advances that can keep somebody from not dying eventually. We have medical advances to keep people alive, you know, for a longer time than they may have been. We even have the medical advances to revive somebody and bring them back from the dead. But nobody actually has the power to allow somebody to live forever. I'm not actually sure that I really want to live forever. I mean, what would I look like in forever? (laughs) Just kidding. Actually, I'm not kidding. (laughs) And what would your quality of life be? You know, I don't know. Um, So forever. Nobody else has the power to keep Jesus alive forever except for God. His power also placed Christ to the right hand, to his right hand in heavenly places above all other power forever. Last week, Eric talked about this idea of um, already, but not yet. So he's already been placed at his right hand above all other power, but we will not see the completion of that over all of other power until the end. So he had the power to place him at his right hand and above all of the powers forever again. Jesus' resurrection and exaltation to as the Lord has already given him all the power and the authority, but all things have not yet been finished. So we know that there is still more to come. God's power is still playing out for us. Some might say the calling kind of looks to the past, even though he's still calling us now, but it's kind of like it looks behind at the calling. The inheritance might look at the future. This is what is to come. And then this power that he has, God still has it. So this is now, this was then, it's now, and it will be to come as well. And so that is the significance of God's power, his inheritance, and his calling. The exaltation of Christ speaks to God's power as well, which we just talked about. So let's look at verses 21 through 23, but starting at verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There are five categories of power that were mentioned there. They mentioned rule, he mentioned authority, 
He mentioned power. He said dominion. And he also said name or title. If you think about those words, they might kind of be synonymous. Rule, ruler, authority, power, dominion, ruler over something, or a title, like ruler, or king, or president, or whatever. These, po- these sources of power have been stacked on top of one another to give this emphasis that Christ's victory makes all other powers subject to him. All other powers are subject to him. I don't know about you, but I test that every once in a while. I have this tendency to like to experience the sense of control. And so I don't take wild risks like tempting my you know, fate or my life or anything like that. But generally speaking, I am pretty capable of taking things into my own hands and seeing how far I can get on my own um, until I find myself in this spot like, oh, no. And then I offer this, this prayer for myself. And sometimes I might text somebody and say, oh, I got myself in trouble. I got myself in over my head because I was going to do this on my own. And so mm, sometimes my power, <laughs> my authority, my control needs to be tampered a little bit. And thankfully, it is every so often or maybe not so often, real often, like weekly or maybe even daily, <laughs> if I'm being real honest. God's power placed everything and everybody under Christ's rule. And we see this again in these last two verses in reference to body parts. He listed feet, he listed head, he listed body. Paul is known for his use of, anal- of, use of body parts to, to, for an analogy of how the structure of the church ought to be. And so we'll get to, in other books that Paul has read, but we'll see this again in chapter 4 as well. But verses 22 and 23 talk specifically about God's power. 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He placed all things under his feet. Under his feet, emphasizing, again, that stack of power that he has dominion and rule over. They are under his feet. And then he placed Christ as the head, the authority, above all, of the church. All things related to the church. Christ is Lord of the church. Lord is another title that we think about somebody having authority and power. Christ is Lord over the church. He is the head of the church, which is his body. Christ is the authority over the body of believers. That is us. Another way to look at this um, is that we are the believers and this unity that comes from him being the head 
over all of us, the body. There's unity, right? You can't ha- you're not going to have a head without a body, and you're not going to have a body without a head. These two pieces, these are united, like here. There's unity, and so this also brings the unity between the body and the head. And so that's part of that analogy that Paul likes to use with body parts um, in talking about the structure of the church. So this is where God's power lies as well. He had the power to put all other authority under his feet when he seated him at his right hand. He had all authority when he placed head at Christ at the head of the church over all things related to the church. Christ is Lord. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is completed its fullness by Christ at the head and the church being fully dependent on Christ to be filled by him means fills all in all. It is complete. And so that's this picture that Paul has created of the structure of the church and how it has, um, how he sees it, how he wants us to understand it. Now, the interesting thing about this prayer is that um, there's a, it's packed with systematic theology. And I'm now just understanding systematic theology since I'm in my seminary um, programming. But systematic theology is an account of the doctrine of Christian faith. So if you look at this prayer, he's doing a great job of laying out Christian doctrine, what God's role is, what the role of Jesus was in the resurrection, his death and resurrection, and then also the role of the Holy Spirit. And he is, um, he is asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts. And the Holy Spirit is part of that um, Trinitarian understanding. That's the peace that we have. That is the peace that binds us and gives us that um, I don't know, kind of like a conduit. It gives us, um, I think about like the experiences that we can have. The Holy Spirit um, can point to us, point out for us um, things that have been, um, things that may have been God at work in front of us, in us, or around us. Sometimes I f- catch myself thinking, oh my gosh, was that a coincidence? I know that we have talked about this before. But then I stop myself and I'm like, well, was it a coincidence? You know, I, and we talked about last week too, that idea that, that God is responsible for all things. And so it plays into that a little bit as well. But the Holy Spirit is a means for us to be able to identify where God is working in us through us and around us, and that's what Paul is hoping that will enlighten us to help us understand where God is at work, how he is at work. So last week, as I mentioned, Eric had said um, also about this prayer that it was theocentric, focusing on God. The first part of that doxology was really focusing on all of the blessings that have come from God, and thanking him for those. 
And this is also very, it's also Trinitarian. So it is also recognizing God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's Trinitarian. It's recognizing them as distinct but one. And so that's part of that theology that we see in this prayer as well. This prayer tells us that in order to truly know who God is, we must include prayer, a reliance on the Holy Spirit, thinking, and receiving. So prayer, something that we can do, something that somebody can do on our behalf. Reliance on the Holy Spirit, that's that part that we can feel and experience. Thinking, okay, thinking about who God is, who he says he is. And then also receiving, another piece of that receiving, the love of other followers of Christ, the love of Jesus. Oftentimes, if you've experienced the ultimate journey, you have heard people say, Christ in me, Christ through me. There's that part of it as well. In our discussion this afternoon um, at lunch, a couple of things came out. Um, one, disappointment that there wasn't anything real controversial in tonight's passage for there to be debate or heated conversation in your discussion groups. That was one thing. So I was like, throw something out there. Like, I could throw something out and see if it sticks. Anybody? Controversial topic in here? Okay. Oh, of course you will, Russ. That's a great question, Russ. <laughs> Didn't Eric last week talk about Kayla Schifrin, like skiing right off the course? Um, I mean, he, I'm sorry. Did you? I'm sorry, Eric. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is she? Is she racing right now? Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. Wrap it up. <laughs> Wrap it up. All right. So um, we, what we did talk about is how we desire to know God and how that moves from knowing God. And then we realize that we actually want to experience him. And so one that, something that um, has kind of been in my mind for the last year is oftentimes people say that they want to know more about God and maybe they'll pick up the Bible and they'll say, what, what's the first book I should read? What book is going to get me to that place where I really know who God is? And oftentimes um, what I think and what I've experienced is that rather than people wanting to know him, they often are really expressing that they want to experience him. And so what does it mean to experience him? And so we talked about we want to hear him, we want to feel him, we want to see how he works in us, 
through us and around us, those are the parts that we want to experience God. We want to see those things. We want to experience them, and we want to feel them. And so one of the ways that we can intentionally do that is going beyond you know, reading our scripture and studying our scripture, although it's part of it, is spiritual disciplines. And I know Eric, um, a couple of years ago now, um, did a series of spiritual disciplines, one per month for a year. So instruction in the sp- spiritual discipline and, and then the practice of it. Um, so spiritual disciplines are not something new. They're something that are quite old. Um, a couple of the, my favorite resources uh, about spiritual, dis- spiritual disciplines is the Spirits of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives. This is Dallas Willard. Um, and another one that is newer to me, but I really like it, is Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth. Um, Dallas Willard talks about how we um, ought to mirror the patterns of Jesus' life in order to have the connection to God, the experience of God that we desire. Um, So this is um, talking a lot about it and a little bit about what that looks like. And Richard Foster, he really talks about um, the actual disciplines and what they look like. And so spiritual disciplines are one of the ways that we can do that. And prayer is one of those spiritual disciplines. There are a lot of spiritual disciplines. These two actually like each other and they're friends. Um, Dallas Willard's no longer with us, but Richard Foster is. And so Dallas wrote the foreword for Richard Foster. But I will tell you that the spiritual disciplines listed in Dallas's book and the spiritual disciplines that are in Richard's book, they are similar. There is overlap, but there are some that are different as well. So there are many, and I don't know that there's a resource out there that you're going to find one that lists all of them in great detail. Um, but prayer is always one of them. And so that's why I think it is significant that Paul uh, uses this prayer, and we're talking about this prayer and his desire for us to really know who God is, to be able to experience and have a full understanding of who he is. And so um, prayer is one of the most obvious, and it's probably one of the easiest disciplines. However, um, I mentioned earlier, um, Paul has kind of laid out this, um, a pattern Um, that he had this doxology, and now we named, I named this intercession. It's prayer on behalf of somebody. I think one of the things that can be intimidating about prayer is that we think that there's a model for prayer or there's a right way to do it. Um, In our small group that has just come together, we have a lot of new people that are new to Timberwood and new to um, this faith tradition. And so when we got together and we said, we are going to share a meal together We'll do a study together, and then we'll pray together. And we sat down and we started talking about what's going to be a comfortable way to um, incorporate prayer into our time together. A couple of people said, "Um, you know, I'm just really not comfortable praying because I don't know how. And so could we read a book or could you give us something to tell us how to pray the right way? And so... um, we did do, we did engage in a book um, that is pretty um, 
easy. It's not very formulaic. It's called, um, What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer? Who wrote it, Lee? Sky Jafani. What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer? And so he actually kind of breaks down this formulaic thing and allows people to be comfortable with prayer. Um, and Eugene Peterson is somebody who talked quite a bit um, about prayer when he's talking about, I think Eric mentioned this book. Did you mention this book, Eric? Yeah. Um, Eugene Peterson has a different way of approaching um, scripture. In, it's not really a commentary form, but it is kind of a less structured, more maybe casual commentary form. But he says this. <coughs> it's fairly common among us to discuss the language of prayer by developing a vocabulary of nomenclature, adoration, petition, intercession, praise, thanksgiving, blessing, confession. This making of lists is not without its usefulness, but I have never been fond of the practice. And then he goes on to say, prayer is a generic term for any process or activity qualified by a living relationship between human souls and God. It not only embraces all the usual divisions of prayer, but all such works, arts, and moral acts, which truly spring from our communion with God. Prayer, quite simply, is the total experience of the Christian man and woman. We pray when we are meditatively quiet before God with Psalm 118 open before us. We pray while we are taking out the garbage. We pray when we are losing our grip and when we ask God for help. We pray when we are weeding the garden. We pray when we are asking God for help uh, to help a friend who is at the end of her rope. We pray when we are writing a letter. We pray when we are in conversation with our um, cynical or bullying boss. His words, not mine. We pray with our friends in church. We pray walking down Main Street in the company of strangers. He's not saying that everything that we do is prayer, but what he's saying is that um, everything we do and think can be prayer. And so we don't have to be so um, worried about where we're praying, if we're praying in the right spot or if we're praying at the right time and if we're using the right words or the right formula um, to pray. And so I think it's really important to realize that Prayer and the fact that Paul is using this prayer to communicate something very important to us, the fact that he is praying on our behalf, something that is so significant, I would encourage you to go back and read through this section to get, you know, remind yourself, go back, what exactly was he praying for? What did he want for us to know about God? And do we know that? Do you know, do I really know the power of God's call, the significance of the inheritance, the power that God has to put Jesus over all other things? And do I really understand the significance of that? Those are some of the discussions that you will have in your groups today. There are multiple questions within multiple questions, and so um, hopefully you'll get through as many of you as you can, and we'll see you back here at 7.55.
And no, Eric will not have Kayla's race on in his office. So go to your groups. <laughs>